0: Hi everyone, this is Alicia Halliday and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Do the rules apply in school? One thing people assume about autism in schools is that the clinical evaluation matches the educational classification. Some schools require an autism diagnosis for certain services and others do not and in a perfect world it would be based on need and not diagnosis but you know that's not how things work. So researchers in California and Philadelphia, including SAB member David Mandel, looked at how well the clinical diagnosis of autism using the Autism Diagnostic Observation Scale or ADOS matched with a classification of autism. They found that there are state differences. They matched almost always or 97% in California, but slightly less in Pennsylvania, closer to 92%. Now, actually, I'm guessing the point of this study was to determine whether or not educational classification was a good proxy for an autism diagnosis in research studies. But the results do give you a sense that the numbers of educational classifications in the system may differ by state. Not everyone who is diagnosed with autism by educational standards may meet the threshold for autism in a clinical setting. The researchers called it, quote, imperfect but reasonable, unquote, for research purposes. Those with higher IQ or intellectual functioning were less likely to meet the clinical diagnosis, which may explain some of the differences. It also may explain a little bit about why things are different in the school systems than they are in the research setting. Now, one would assume that the more severe the autism symptoms and the higher the needs are, that the services for kids with autism would be higher co-occurring psychiatric symptoms and intellectual functioning may also influence school service der- determination. Well, past reports from parents say, in fact, that's not true, and really there's been no actual study on it. So recently, Tamara Rosen in the Learner Lab at Stony Brook University looked at the association of autism symptom severity with the likelihood and frequency of school services and whether this association differed by teacher or parent ratings or clinical evaluation. They also looked at the severity of co-occurring psychiatric symptoms and the level of intellectual functioning to see whether or not they were associated with receipt and frequency of school services. They took the records of kids with autism who were referred to a Stony Brook autism clinic between 6 and 18 years of age, otherwise known as school age, and assessed them with a parent report, a clinical evaluation, and they also had the parents ask the teachers to complete their own impressions. Now, just a note here, most of them included in the study were white and male. Here's the thing. Even the best intentioned researchers with the best protocol are going to be stuck with the ones that actually get the diagnosis. What they found was both surprising and reassuring. They found that compared to parent ratings, clinical evaluation and teacher ratings of severity showed the strongest and most consistent associations with receipt and frequency of school services. Moreover, clinical evaluation demonstrated more consistent associations with school services than a teacher report. Higher IQ usually meant fewer school services. Clinical evaluation demonstrated more consistent association with school services than teacher report. That's a good thing. They're looking at the clinical evaluations, not always relying on teachers. Now higher IQ usually meant fewer school services. Parent reports, in fact, had little or few associations with the services kids received in school. There wasn't a negative or a positive association. There was no association. In fact, the clinical evaluation and the teacher report surpassed the parent report in whether or not the kid was receiving school services. Now, I'm not saying parent concern has no role in the IEP process, because in a perfect world, again, it does. But it does go again to demonstrate that what happens at home sometimes stays at home and what happens at school sometimes stays at school. Things that happen at home don't always cross over to the school setting. The authors make an astute conclusion of the findings. They found that when clinicians rated severity, it correlated with services at all levels of severity. So lower levels of severity meant the kids received fewer services. Higher levels of severity meant that they received more services. But teacher ratings of issues only kick in at higher levels of clinician rated severity. It's possible that kids with autism, whose severity is so high that both teachers and clinicians agree on it, represent a distinct subgroup, and that this is seen as a group with a particular need for services. When the IEP team agrees, the door is open to a richer, wider array of services quicker. They point out that future studies should investigate those with more ambiguous symptom presentation and different levels of severity because their services may be overlooked, especially if only teacher reports are used. And teacher attitudes are important. In another study, teachers based on their own experiences were shown to bring their own individual perspectives to autism. One of the features of autism that can be disruptive in the classroom are repetitive and restrictive behaviors. For the purposes of this study, investigating the attitudes and perceptions of teachers, researchers divided these repetitive and restricted behaviors into two types, higher order and lower order. Higher order are the rituals and the circumscribed interests And the lower order are the motor and sensory behaviors. The teachers didn't go in with any preconceived notion of how they would be interpreted, just that they were different. They were given vignettes of students expressing these behaviors and were asked how they felt emotionally and how confidently they could manage them. It turns out that teachers have different attributions of higher and lower repetitive behaviors in terms of both the level of control the child has on those behaviors and the stability of those behaviors. The lower order behaviors, the motor and sensory behaviors like loud noises or bright lights, were rated as more easy for the child to control, but also less stable. The differences in this, by the way, were very small. Interestingly, however, in spite of these differences, teachers reported no difference in their emotional response towards these two types of repetitive behaviors. They did find that teachers reported feeling less confident in their ability to manage those higher-order behaviors, those behaviors that involve rituals and circumcised interests. No difference in attributions in relation to repetitive behaviors were found by teachers working within the mainstream and the specialist settings. However, the sample of teachers working in the mainstream schools in this study reported significantly reduced confidence and less sympathy towards children with repetitive behaviors compared to those in special education settings. So this is what we might call experience-dependent learning. Those in the mainstream schools may have less experiences with different types of repetitive behaviors and therefore have a completely different outlook on them. And therefore, they don't understand them and they misinterpret their meeting. Now, should all teachers have to do a rotation in a special needs environment as part of their training? That's not for me to decide, but it is an interesting idea. Finally, I've talked about how hard it is to develop something in a clinic and then get it to be used in the community, like schools. Things that seem feasible by trained experts aren't necessarily quickly accepted in the hustle and bustle of a school. These schools try, don't get me wrong, but they have 99 things to worry about during the day, and correctly implementing a trial intervention isn't always one of them. So I was pleased when a new study of an evidence-based intervention for mental health was delivered in school settings and public mental health clinics. There's good reason to do this. Approximately 70% of kids with autism meet criteria for one non-ASD co-occurring psychiatric disorder. Children with autism represent 10 to 14% of children in the psychiatrically referred population, and mental health therapists say that they also represent a significant proportion of their caseload. We need evidence-based interventions for problems with behavior in settings where most of these kids are getting treated, schools and psychiatric clinics. The study trained community mental health therapists, These may be guidance counselors in the schools or caseworkers in the schools or case managers or therapists that work in other public settings. There were two waves so that some trained in the first half could be later trained in the second half. If the study worked, they wanted a way for everyone to get the training, but they also need a control group, therapists that were not trained to make it sure that it actually did work in the first wave. So guess what? 85% of the therapists were women. I'm really not surprised by that. So did it work? Short answer, yes. The training some of the clinicians receive was called AIMHI. It's called an Individualized Mental Health Intervention for Autism. The AIMHI protocol is a package of parent and child-directed strategies aimed at reducing challenging behaviors in children with autism from 5 to 13 years of age, and it's specifically designed for delivery in public settings. The protocol contains well-established behavioral intervention strategies which include collaborating with the child's parents to identify patterns of the child's escalating challenging behaviors and actively teaching through things like modeling, reinforcement, and in-home practice positive alternative skills for children and complementary strategies for parents to help prevent the occurrence of challenging behaviors and to promote the child's use of alternative skills. The AMHI protocol also includes strategies to adapt psychotherapy structure for this population to facilitate engagement and skill building. A minimum of 13 sessions was required, and it typically took approximately six months to complete the protocol steps. Children whose therapists received the AMHI training and ongoing consultation showed greater decreases in the frequency and severity of parent reported challenging behaviors across the 18 months compared with children whose therapists delivered usual care. Sometimes the effects were small, sometimes the effects were medium they were highest for the frequency and severity of disruptive behaviors in the home and school settings as well to the extent to which parents and teachers found the behavior troublesome however they were smaller for other broader behaviors like fearfulness social withdrawal and somatic complaints in my mind let's not focus on the negative let's concentrate on the positive child characteristics like race sex Age, ethnicity, ASD severity, and IQ did not make a difference, so it worked the same for those with low IQ and high IQ. However, what did make a difference was the effectiveness in which therapists were delivering the intervention. The better the delivery, the better the outcome. However, it should be noted that both groups did show improvements across time. This meant that whatever they're getting in the community is working. It just means that AIMHI works a little bit better. So what's so great about this study? It means that people can be trained on an intervention to reduce problem behaviors in the classroom setting, and it works. So that's a pretty big thing. I hope to see this in more schools. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.